This episode is brought to you in part by the following Government of Canada partners. The Trade Commissioner Service at the Consulate General of Canada in Minneapolis, which supports trade and investment opportunities between Canada and the upper Midwest states of Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, and North Dakota. Hi, I'm Aditi, and this is Brett. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation and ugly, ugly vegetables. Welcome to our second season, everyone. We are back. We made it. We did. We made it to our second season. All brought to you by Canada. We have a new sponsor and they're Canadian. So we love all things Canada. Steph, what's the last piece of food a person texted you a picture of? Actually, today someone texted me a photo of a breakfast sandwich because a new little cafe opened in my neighborhood and we're all very excited. I think I mostly get pictures of meats being smoked texted to me. That tends to be the most common thing I get texted is that. Yeah, that sounds right. Seems very on brand for you, Brett. Well, we have a great lineup for you this season, from pizza-making robots to one of the most disruptive companies in precision farming, and of course, fake meat. And this time, we're even throwing in a dash of cannabis into the mix, guys. Such a cool season. Well, we are picking up right where we left off last season. You may remember our second to last show of season one. We spoke to James Rogers from Appeal, which is tackling the problem of food waste. This season, we're kicking things off by looking at a different solution to the same problem. Our question today is, can we innovate our way out of global hunger? Part two. And this time we're talking to Ben Chesler, co-founder of Imperfect Foods. They take, quote, ugly produce or fruits and veggies, which may come in odd sizes or shapes and may not make it to your traditional grocery store. And then they sell that produce, bringing in extra produce for farmers and curbing food waste. And guys, they actually had some news coming up recently. They are going to be acquired by Misfits. We're going to be talking about that in just a second. But we want to make sure we point out that we spoke to Ben before that was announced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, you two, what's your favorite ugly vegetable or piece of produce? Hmm. Tough question. That is. Are we talking about like an unripened banana or like overripe banana? Or are we talking about like a weirdly shaped eggplant? You know what I mean? Like you're a level deeper than I was. But like an apple can look really disgusting. It's a great question. I was like, that pumpkin is an ugly ass vegetable. Aditi, is it a big thing to go out to pumpkin patches in San Francisco? I'm in the heart of Silicon Valley and not as much. It doesn't really come to life when it's 80 degrees out. We go pumpkin picking every year. Pumpkin picking is a big part of the Brule family tradition. I go for the ugly ones. Well, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. And we are going to be starting off with that ugly produce with Imperfect Foods. They are getting acquired Misfits Market. A rival of Imperfect has agreed to acquire Imperfect Foods. Axia is reporting that Misfits declined to disclose how much it's paying for Imperfect, but Misfits is valued at around $2 billion in its last round led by SoftBank. Imperfect has a big network of delivery vans while Misfits outsources much of its logistics. Brett and Steph, Imperfect Foods recently went through some layoffs and closed its warehouse in San Francisco. Is this a good move by both companies? 
I mean, I wonder how much of it's driven by the macro economy right now, right? Where, especially for later stage companies, the macro economy is difficult to raise subsequent rounds of capital. It's difficult to IPO. You're not getting valuations you want. And so anytime there's an acquisition of companies of this scale, it's like the whole has got to be greater than them individually. So the total share price, if you took what they are individually, Adam, the combined value needs to be greater than that. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense for anybody to do. And I think what you just touched on, Aditi, is exactly what they must be thinking. It's kind of like when Amazon acquired Whole Foods in a lot of ways. Whole Foods became distribution hubs because they wanted to get into fresh produce and fresh food delivery and grocery delivery. And an easy way to do it for them was to have these hubs, which are the Whole Foods to deliver from. And so leveraging that delivery network might be the thing. That's what I think as well, that this is a logistics plan has a lot to do with the fact that one has their own delivery and one does not. And Steph, from a story perspective, you think it would be just a perfect partnership because both do the same thing virtually and they each have complementary strengths, right? Exactly. And I think they also both share a lot of, obviously, from the little I know about them from a consumer standpoint, is they share a lot of great brand attributes and in terms of their mission and their values and what they're setting out to do for the world, which I think makes a pairing easier. Next, Swiss startup Planted has raised a Series B round of about $72 million, led by L. Catterton, the alt-protein company which uses fermentation and biostructuring to make vegan meat, will use that funding to launch a new line of products called Whole Cuts. That includes plant-based chicken. Brett, I know what fermentation is, using yeast cells to recreate proteins on a cellular level, but can you explain what biostructuring is? Does it have to do with that mouthfeel you guys are always talking about? I think it is the way in which you put the end product together. So what's the structure that you attach everything else to? How do you go from small microorganisms to a little bit larger organisms to get it all together in one spot, which does create the mouthfeel, the bite, the texture, all of those things. Well, we are ending on a fun topic here. Finally, Dairy Queen's fall blizzard menu is out. And among the new flavors you can indulge in, Cinnamon Roll Center's Blizzard. Yum. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups with Whole Peanuts and Pretzels in Vanilla Soft Serve. And Snickers Brownie Blizzard with Snickers bars, brownie pieces, and caramel topping all blended together. There's also the return of some fall faves like the Oreo Hot Cocoa and Pumpkin Pie Blizzards, along with Very Cherry Chip. Steph, I feel a divide with Brett coming on with our favorite flavors. <laughs> do you have any favorites in that list? I do. I'm Part of me wants to guess what Brett's is going to be, but mine would be Snickers, I think. That was a whole lot of reading, Aditi. I'm very glad that you're a professional at this because that was a heck of a tongue twister. Also, it feels like we're trying to get Dairy Queen on as a sponsor, which I support. Dairy Queen, if you want to join. <laughs> we love all of the flavors. I would choose probably the Oreo hot cocoa. Yeah, that sounds good too. Man, I probably number one for me on this list would be, uh, oh man, I don't even know. I was going to say you're going to go pretzels. I thought, Brett, that was my guess. He seems like a pretzel. Like You probably like chocolate-covered pretzels. You're one of those people. I do. I do. Oh, yeah. Wait. Who doesn't like chocolate-covered pretzels? Me. There's this thing, Aditi, in our office that we may have talked about before called Nutcrack. Oh, Nutcrack. What is that? Oh, we'll send you a bag. It is fabulous. They have both candied pecans and then pecans with everything spice on them. 
Oh, my goodness. Yes, definitely bring it on. Well, coming up, we'll hear how an oversized sweet potato convinced Imperfect Foods Ben Chesler to tackle food waste. Is that ugly, an oversized sweet potato? I was going to say, that might be the ugliest piece of produce. I think Ben Chesler thinks so. A 20-pound sweet potato may not sound like a life-changing piece of produce, but it was for Ben Chesler. He describes that sweet potato as grotesque, which is why it was the perfect proof point for the startup he and Ben Simon founded in 2015. Imperfect Foods takes ugly, misshapen, or weird-looking fruits and veggies that would otherwise go to waste and delivers them to your home. The two Bens had a simple goal. If you could just save this produce before it gets tossed and get it into the homes of customers who are willing to overlook the imperfections, you could make a real dent in fighting food waste. Over the last several years, Imperfect Foods has built a sophisticated logistics network. And recently, rival Misfits Market announced it is acquiring Imperfect Foods. While the news came out after we taped our interview, we did learn that the seeds of the company were planted in Ben long before he set eyes on that sweet potato. I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. And what was it like as a kid? I have ADHD and I think I had ADHD like to a T as a kid. I was all over the place, always coming up with new ideas. Very rarely was I actually following through on those ideas. I was really lucky. My mom, like we grew up solidly, like I was the upper middle class, but my mom was like the thriftiest person I've ever met. Like I would probably reuse a plastic bag for lunch, like 20 times before she'd let me throw it out. And so we'll get to that, how that relates to the rest of my journey later on. But that's how I would think about my childhood is loving household, very thrifty. And I was just bouncing all over the place. (laughs) Was the idea of food waste or just even food or entrepreneurship or those themes at all prevalent in your childhood? Food waste Definitely to the point of being thrifty, where like, you know, anything that we wasn't used became leftovers the next day and we couldn't bear to, you know, throw stuff out. Entrepreneurship was not really on the radar, to be totally honest. Both my parents are lawyers and they're both fabulous, but I don't really have any entrepreneurship running in the family. So it was new to me. And it I don't think I even consider the concept of entrepreneurship until well after I was doing it. Interesting. Where do you go to college and what do you study? So I went to Brown University. And I studied very little is the answer that I usually give. I got a degree in economics, but I took some time off before college, and we can get to that part of the journey as well. But in college, I did student-run theater, and I did like lighting design and set construction, and I spent about half my time there. And I was also running a nonprofit called the Food Recovery Network in college, and I spent half my time there. And so I always say whatever was left over after those two, I, you know, I went to class once in a while. I took economics because it was an easy degree. And so it was like 400 of us and it was like 395 jocks and then like me. Hold on. Economics is the easy degree there. Like I remember like, you know, sports marketing was the easy degree where I went to school, not economics. Yeah. This is the way they told us about it was that if you wanted to get a graduate degree in economics, you shouldn't study economics in undergrad because it wasn't rigorous enough to warrant grad school. And the government economists 
They said that they liked to hire the physics major because they could teach them the economic theory in about two weeks, but it would take them about four years to teach us the math skills we would need. Well, you said you took some time off before college. What did you do then? Yeah. So I ended up in D.C., Washington, D.C., interning for an organization called Search for Common Ground that, among other things, did really innovative peace-building work in the Middle East and Africa. I was working on their U.S. side, but the reason I mentioned that is I was interning there, and someone who was interning there the previous summer came by to say hello. And this is going to sound really nerdy, but one of the things I realized like after high school was like without homework, I had very little to do with my evenings. It was like work ended at 5 p.m., and I was like, great, what do I do now? And the person who I met was a student at University of Maryland. And so I just like literally started hanging out at the University of Maryland, like after work, like I would take a bus up there and I had to lie every time I wanted to take the shuttle home because it was like a university shuttle to get back to my apartment. And so I was like, oh, I forgot my student ID again. And if it was like a driver that I knew, I had to like wait for the next bus to like, you know, so he didn't kind of know that I was just lying every time. But I basically started hanging out at the University of Maryland. And that person, Ben Simon, actually became my co-founder of two ventures over the next 10 years. Hold on. Sorry, sorry, dude. I keep interrupting. And so like most college students used fake IDs to ride a bus. Yeah. Correct. Okay. I just wanted to make sure we're clearing. I was using my fake IDs for something totally different, something totally different than you were. (laughs) Well, you mentioned when you were in college, you started a nonprofit related to food waste. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so that actually started at Maryland. So right, so I'm here I am non-student hanging out. I actually started going to like student club meetings, which again, I didn't think was super weird until like I got to school and I was like, "Oh, if somebody just randomly showed up and wasn't a student at like the drama society meeting, like it'd be weird." And Ben Simon basically approached me. We became friends on those illicit bus rides, and he said, "I've been thinking about recovering all the food from the college dining halls. Like we see at the end of the night, they're throwing out all this food. It's ridiculous. We've talked to the dining hall workers. They tell us they throw it out. They want to do something. Can you help me? And I had actually, in high school, I had worked with some friends to start a nonprofit that was fighting child sex trafficking. So totally different. But I kind of knew how to get the paperwork for a 501c3 up and running. And so while I was in Maryland, we kind of put the early stages together of what would become the Food Recovery Network. But I basically helped them get it set up. And then I left and I went and traveled in Africa for the last five years of my gap year. Ben, can I just ask, did you immediately recognize food as this huge issue in terms of waste? Or was it kind of just like Ben had this idea, it was right there in front of us? It was really the latter as much as I hate to admit it. Like I talk about like, I think if I think back and reflect back, like my mom and being thrifty and saving food was definitely part of my upbringing. But I just thought of myself as a problem solver. And Ben presented the problem of food going to waste. And it was like silly that people are hungry and there's food getting thrown out at the same time. I always joke that like imperfect foods wouldn't have existed if he'd come to me with a different problem. It wasn't like I was obsessed with food my whole life. But at that point forward, we became obsessed with food waste. And you learned so much as well. I know you were sharing some numbers with me. What are some of the most eye-popping numbers that a lot of people may not know about? Yeah, I think the two statistics that always blew us away were 40% of the food produced in the world goes to waste at various stages. And then as we got into imperfect foods and perfect produce, we learned that 20% of the produce in the U.S. that's grown on farms never makes it to a human mouth in one form or another. I think the other stat, too, is 
if food waste were a country, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. That's just staggering to think about. You were running the nonprofit in college, and later you began Imperfect Produce, but one did not directly 100% lead to the other, right? There was a little bit of time when you were trying to think about your future. Yeah. So picking up the story from Maryland, I basically got to Brown, got a call from Ben, who I had pretty much forgotten about at that point. And he said, hey, that thing we planned in Maryland, like it's taking off. We recovered 50,000 pounds of produce the first you know, year. Do you want to do something at Brown? Having very few friends at Brown, I had a lot of free time in my freshman year. And so we basically started a program at Brown that did the same thing. And then we realized that no one else was doing it in colleges across the country. And so we basically started the Food Recovery Network as a nonprofit to help students across the country start programs recovering food. And we were able to scale that to about 200 colleges across the country. And so I always loved, we'd go to these conferences all over the world, like Italy and California, Mexico, and it would be like, just like a high school reunion. And so you're in your senior year of college, thinking about what you're going to do after you graduate. What were some of the things going on in your head? You know, I like to tell the story that I had offers to work at McKinsey and Bain and all these venture capital firms, and I turned them down to start Imperfect Produce. It turns out if you don't prepare for those interviews or spend time practicing, they don't really want to hire you and you have to put on a suit, which I didn't know. So I was kind of at this point where, you know, I hadn't gotten the consulting gigs. I actually got rejected for a truck driver job, which as an Ivy League graduate was pretty demoralizing. I didn't even get a first interview, to be honest, uh, which was really... I like had an in at the company too. It was really bad. I got declined. I got rejected by Xerox to be a copy machine salesperson. So I was going to sell Xerox copiers out of college and did not get that job. I got rejected from Yuma, Arizona to be a reporter and Eureka, California... Yuma is like the food waste capital of the U.S. It's because of one of the produce centers of the U.S. With It's one of the produce centers of the U.S. because all the produce from Mexico comes in through Yuma and Nogales. Yeah. Interesting. So you're getting rejected from consulting companies, even truck driving jobs, probably feeling pretty low. <laughs> what are you thinking now? Yeah. It's depressing when you say like that. I, didn't, I don't know if I felt super low. It's just, you know, I was a 22 years old. But Ben, who was at one of those ubiquitous conferences I talked about, showed up basically at my apartment in Providence with this like 20 pound sweet potato. It was like grotesque. And he had had it in his bag for like three weeks in a row. So it was like rotting and decaying. And he said, Ben, drop all those other job offers, which I don't think he knew I didn't have. He said, we're selling. This is what we're doing next year for a living. We're selling this. And when he put that 20 pound sweet potato that was rotting in front of you, and gave you that sell, what went through your head? I was like, I have to think about that. I have a lot of really compelling options here. And so, uh, you know, I'm going to have to turn a lot of people down to do this. But in my mind, I was like, great, here's a job. We can do it. I mean, I had worked, like Ben and I co-founded the Food Recovery Network together. So we knew we worked well together. Did you have any hesitations on the consumer side or any worries about what consumers would think about that part of the business? I didn't have any worries, but I wasn't really thinking about it. And I think, like they always tell you, and I tell people now, right? Like, identify a consumer need and go from there. We didn't do any of that. You know, no one was begging us for ugly produce. We identified an environmental need and said, yeah, of course, it's going to be cheaper in the grocery store and it's going to help save the planet. Who wouldn't want it? Well, what are some of the first things that you did to roll it out? And obviously, you did this in the form of a nonprofit and was wildly successful with the 200 college campuses. How different is it of a challenge to do it at the 
startup level. Yeah, it was really challenging, especially because we didn't really have the support that I think exists now for a lot of entrepreneurs. So I remember we raised about $500,000 to get it started. And we spent about nine months trying to raise that money. We probably got 50 to 60 no's before we actually got a yes. And actually, it was a group called Gratitude Railroad, which was a bunch of ex-hedge fund managers and private equity guys from New York that had taken on kind of climate changes as uh, an investing thesis and created an impact investment fund. And they're the only reason we exist today, to be honest. The interesting thing about it is like, despite raising venture capital, like it very much looked like a small business when we started. We rented a very small 5,000 square foot warehouse. We had to rent a forklift. Like, I remember, like, I actually have a picture of the checklist, the to-do list, because we had a month to get it started. And it was like, buy a broom, order the produce, right? Like, you know, get like a sign-in sheet for employee. Like, it was just like very much a, a small business. It wasn't like a tech venture thing. And then the day we launched, we had some press contacts from our time at the Food Recovery Network. We were on the front page of the food section of the New York Times. And so it was like these worlds colliding of like, Literally, we served like four zip codes in Oakland. Like we could only deliver within like a five mile radius and like the New York Times had featured us. And so that's kind of like when we knew we were onto something. Did the website crash when that article came out? It didn't crash. This is a fun fact, which is like a New York Times article will get you a lot of press, but not as much as you actually think, which is interesting. Yeah, I think a combination of like that and the fact that we only serve four zip codes, we got like probably 10 or 20 signups from that of people in that area. And the funny story that I tell is two weeks later, we got like 100 signups in one day, which was huge for us. And I was like, where is this from? Like, there's no press hits, like whatever. And we found out somebody had posted on Reddit, like, what's a good food delivery service in the Bay Area? And like four people chimed in and said, oh, Imperfect Produce is cool. And like, that was way more our target customer than the New York Times. Going back to like operationally, can you explain how it worked would you have people going to farms then? You, you started at the farm level and what was going to waste there? Yeah, for sure. So operationally, basically, we would get a list from the farmers every week of product they had they couldn't sell. And we were actually small enough then that they were kind of just doing us a favor because of our third partner had relationships with them. Like you can picture it be like, you know those big bins at the grocery store? Sometimes they put like the watermelon in them or whatever. Mm -hmm. They carry about 700 pounds of product. We would get like one of those filled with plums for $20. We would basically just pick like, oh, this is what's going to waste this week. Like we want one order of plums and like one pallet of like tomatoes, etc. Can you talk a little bit about the manpower that was required at that point to drive out then to these farms, which are in what mostly central California, and there was a transit there right between there and bringing them to Emeryville and all that. Yeah. We used third-party carriers that basically went around to the farms and picked up the product and then brought it to our warehouse. And I would get in those early days, like a call at four in the morning and I would hop over my girlfriend who was still sleeping and like bike to the warehouse and like unload the truck myself on the forklift, which I was potentially or maybe not licensed to drive. And what, you know, that was like the early days. And I I always say those were the best days because like you would go pitch an investor for a million dollars and then like an hour later, go back to the hardware store to get a key cut because like you had lost the spare key to the warehouse. It was that combination of like intellectual (laughs) and manual physical labor. That was awesome. Very surreal. And when you would go to investors, by the way, I meant to ask you, would you take any of the produce with you to show as examples? 100%. It was like the only way they got it. Like we kept a bin of the like really ugly stuff. We actually like told our 
employees, like anytime there was something that's really ugly, pull it off for the media, pull it off for photo shoots, like pull it off for investors. What types of early employees were you looking for and how did you find them? Yeah. I mean, we were weird because like, again, we were a small business, right? So it was like, great, we need people to help pack the produce. So like, and we need people to help sell it. So I think our first hires were technically a warehouse manager and a bunch of high school kids to go door to door in the East Bay selling produce, like selling subscriptions door to door. And for the first like six months, the team just every Friday, we would just stop our jobs and pack produce. And then eventually we got big enough that we had to have other people do it. But like the team just did Fridays was pack day for a long time. Was there anyone at the time who was doing what you guys were doing? No, there was no one selling ugly produce. We were the original ones selling ugly produce. So given that, was there a consumer education piece of that that you guys had to really be robust on in order to get a pipeline of steady customers? Yeah, I think there was definitely customer education. There was brand building. I mean, the first question was like, is this just ugly or is it like actually like rotten and going bad? And other than the sweet potato that, you know, Ben had kept in his backpack for three weeks, most of it was not rotten. We really overcame that by the branding. I think we were like the first ones that put googly eyes on produce, which our our head of marketing, who's a good friend, can take credit for. We did it for our first birthday and it just took off. It like this really personifying produce, really high end consumer brand. You said you guys were the first ones to start doing this, but there have been other people that have followed and fast followers, lots of people in the space, like trying to recover whatever. How come you guys have been successful and able to scale and grow? Like what was has been your secret to the longevity that you've had? I don't think I have all the answers, but I think about that question a lot. I mean, for one, we were just the first mover and there was we caught the press at the right time, like the New York Times article led to the Today Show, led to whatever. And like all of a sudden, food waste was in people's consciousness. It's a pretty logistically intensive operation to set up. And so by being first, we did have a competitive advantage there. And the brand went a long way, right? Like Imperfect Foods, like people started to associate with this. I think the other reason we were able to have longevity is just the execution. And I don't think we were perfect by any stretch of imagination. I think we actually still have a long way to go in terms of execution. But like we were delivering on the customer value proposition. And and I think people appreciated that. You mentioned the media attention part of it. You got amazing media attention very early on from these huge media outlets. No doubt that helped build your brand and probably get a lot of customers in your pipeline. But did that also lead to kind of blind spots and not really flexing the muscles of building up capabilities of getting deep in the minds of customers or thinking about how to retain customers? A hundred percent. Yeah. I think that because we took off, I mean, if we think about our, I call it the holiday party count, which was the number of employees at the holiday party every year. I think it was something like 12, 40, 200, 1200. And so like we just grew rapidly. And because we had such good media attention. We said, great, we have product market fit. Everyone loves us. Like, great. And other than like a few tweaks, like allowing you to customize your box early on, the product looked very similar four years in as it did one year in. And we were also expanding geographically so quickly that I think it masked some of the underlying issues of maybe customers didn't love us as much as we thought they did. And maybe we weren't solving their issue as much as we thought they did. I think if I ever give advice to entrepreneurs, it's like, if you think you have product market fit, you probably don't. And you'll know it when you feel it. And we tricked ourselves into thinking we had product market fit because it was like so sexy. It was so like love. Everyone's, oh, I love that. So great. But I, you know, I used to do Imperfect Foods. And I was like, great. So I hear that like I was popular. What I didn't hear is like, oh, I used to do Imperfect Foods, but I canceled. Like, I should be asking you why you canceled and making sure we're constantly improving. Ben, given then 
going back and thinking more deeply about product market fit and doing all that homework and research, who is your target customer and how do you reach them? Yeah, I mean, our target customer has always been primarily female buying for two to three member household in their like late 20s to early 50s. And we reach them through all of the tip. I mean, this point, all the typical channels you'd imagine, right? Whether it's Facebook or Meta or whatever it's called now, Instagram, you know, a lot of direct mail, really just trying to meet them where they're at. We had a lot of really early success with moms groups on Facebook back when it was Facebook, where like we saw that moms were just posting, like, oh, this is a great service that I use. And so we tried to make sure we were amplifying that and that message. More recently, you've decided to expand your offerings to other types of foods. Can you go a little bit deeper on the strategy there? Is it still to drive customers to your core produce and fuel that mission? Or is it that you've built up enough of a core following to think about competing with larger grocery chains or the Instacarts of the world? Yeah. So the reason we expanded from produce to grocery in 2019 was twofold. One is we found out there was a huge amount of food going to waste across the whole grocery store, not just the metaphorical grocery store, the whole supply chain, not just the produce. And two, which was really driving it is customers were saying, especially vegetarians were saying, hey, if you only carried milk and eggs, for example, I wouldn't have to go to the grocery store. Like you're delivering 80% of my product, but I still have to make a trip to the grocery store every week. And that's annoying for me. And it also negates a lot of the carbon benefits of you know not having to drive. And so customers were saying, like, I want to do more shopping with you. And that's really what drove it. But it created some interesting challenges because like, we had to balance fighting food waste and also making sure that items were there every week, I guess it makes sense. Like if there's not an apple there every week, that's okay. But if there's not eggs every week, like that becomes a problem where customers can't rely on you. Yeah. Do you feel like, I don't know if you would have the data on this, but you also have to try to mitigate the food waste as a, a company as well. You have the same challenges as other whether it's grocery stores or purveyors of food, right? So how do you guys manage that food waste? And do you feel like, I mean, you have to be doing it better than anyone else because that would undercut your brand? 100%. Yeah. I mean, both from an economic and a moral perspective, we have to be doing it. And everything, you know, whenever we do have overages, we always follow the food waste pyramid. So first we donate it to food banks and we have great partners in all our cities. And then if we can't do that, if there's really food that we get that's not edible for human consumption, right, we'll try and give it to feed animals. And if not that, we'll compost it. Kind of going down the EPA is a really good food waste pyramid of the higher uses of food. One of the benefits we had is we did scheduled deliveries, a little kind of in the weeds, but we basically delivered to a neighborhood a single day of the week. So if you lived in, you know, whatever, this Palo Alto, we delivered you on Tuesday. And that was helpful from two perspectives. One is it allowed us to just send one van once a week. I was asking you, like, can you talk a little bit about like your transition, like from day to day operator to your role with the company now? Yeah, for sure. So I, I mean, I left day to day operations about a year and a half ago. I was the founding COO, and then I moved to a strategy role once it got big enough that I realized there were far better people to run operations than I was. I'll talk about the reasons I left, and then I'll talk about the transition. I mean, one of the reasons I left is like we were 2000 people by that time. And like I said, there were people that were better equipped to run it. And I had more fun. Like I know myself and I know that my strength lies in like getting things started and running small, nimble teams. And so like it was just time. And I think the other thing is like I could have worked there for the rest of my life and been happy, but I didn't want it to define me, I guess. Did you feel pressure to stay? Like, was there like a lot of pressure? I mean, a lot of founders I work with feel like that pressure to stay, even though they might know in their head it's time to go. Yeah. I ended up staying an extra six months and it actually cost me a trip around the world because by the time I left, it was COVID. I couldn't travel. But 
Ben was the CEO and and he left and I stayed on to oversee the transition to the new CEO. So I did feel pressure to stay. But I think it was the fact that I didn't feel pressure to stay, I think was an indication, I guess, if that makes sense, which that like it was time to go, which is like we had hired a very competent and experienced C-suite. Can you give us any perspective since you guys have been in existence, how much produce you have saved from being wasted? Yeah, we've saved over a quarter billion, so over 250 million pounds of produce from going to waste. And lastly, what's in your future as you look towards the next five or 10 years after having done the work that you've done so far? I actually run entrepreneurship programs at a university called the Rue Institute that's part of Northeastern up in Portland, Maine. And so I get to basically just spend all day working with entrepreneurs, investing in them, counseling them, mentoring them, which is super exciting. Kind of like what Brett gets to do all day, which is really fascinating. I have a one-year-old son. And so a lot of my attention and time goes to watching him grow up. I kind of like that I can check out at 5 p.m. and and work is pretty much done for the day. I think I might have another startup in me, but I'm really interested at the macro level in terms of like helping diversify the startup ecosystem, supporting underrepresented entrepreneurs, and helping entrepreneurs avoid the mistakes I made and having the support I wished I had when I was first starting out. So that's kind of what gets me up in the morning right now. This is the part of the interview that intimidates everyone. I'm going to ask you a series of questions. You only get to give me one word answers. One word and one word only. We'll start really easy today. What's the ugliest piece of produce you've ever seen? Eggplant. Yeah, they're just ugly in general. I agree. In one word, what's the best piece of advice you can give early stage entrepreneurs? Go. That's a good one. You sold a lot of meals from JetBlue. What's your favorite airline snack? Booze. (laughs) (laughs) Good answer. That's a good answer. What's harder, starting a nonprofit or an entrepreneurial startup? Startup. Is Imperfect Foods a food company or a logistics company? Logistics. Your birthday is coming up soon, or by the time this airs, we'll probably have just passed. What's the strangest birthday gift you've ever gotten? This might be my favorite lightning round question ever. Socks? You took the easy road in college and were an economics major, as we found, which is the easy road. When was the last time you used economics? Never. What's the best recovered food to eat on the down low? Stadium fries. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I like that there was like a definitive answer. There's a few that I think you went through in your head there. I went through a stadium beer, stadium fries, and stadium like chicken fingers. My wife is like, you can't eat that stuff. Like, and I'm like, that's like a $18 beer and somebody only finished half of it. So like, this was all pre-COVID to be fair. (laughs) He just uses economics degree, by the way. Yeah, that's fair. I agree. There was economics degrees. That's actually all I have for you today at the speed round. I feel like you succeeded today. That was a B plus. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early-stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today, I'm here with Chris, the CEO and founder of New School Foods. Chris, what's the pain point that you're solving? What I learned a few years ago when I started this company is that our food system today is just completely unsustainable. 
we really need to think about new ways of producing food that's going to continue to support our growing population and do so without killing the planet at the same time. How are you tackling something so big? Well, the wonderful thing is, I think technology over the last few years has shown us that there's some amazing ways that we can basically recreate some of the foods that we know and love so dearly. And over half of the carbon emissions that are produced that contribute to climate change that come from the agriculture world come from meat production. Got it. So are you doing that? Is that what you're doing? That's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to create whole cuts of meat, specifically focusing on the seafood sector today so that people can have a piece of fish, like a whole filet that looks, cooks, tastes, and basically flakes the exact same way that fish does. So how are you going to take over the world? We're currently doing a a fundraise to build out our pilot facility transition from a small uh, or smaller, I should say, lab scale operation to a pilot scale operation. And once we've really proven out those economics with that off-the-shelf hardware, we're going to look to bring this to every single corner of the world. Today, I'm here with Mark, the CEO and founder of Small Food. Mark, what's the problem that you're solving over at Small Food? Well, you know, as someone that's been always passionate about the oceans. I lived my entire life by the oceans and the oceans are in trouble. We all know that. We're at risk of losing one of the most important protein sources on the planet and small food is here to help solve this really, really big problem. So how are you solving it? So small food is really about very, very small food. In fact, microbes and microbes are the world's most energy efficient biological production systems. The challenge is finding the right micro for the right job. And, you know, our passion was, you know, was seafood. And so over a number of years, creating a large characterization program where we characterize over 20,000 unique microbes. And we've actually found this really, really exciting one that is a microalgae. So it came from the ocean. So technically it is seafood in itself, but it can grow in a very, very efficient way, very, very quickly and can supply the same high quality protein can supply the, you know, the omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA. It has a wonderful, clean kind of seafood flavor. It's so versatile for this next generation of alternative seafood products. That's cool. So what's your plan? Like, what are you going to do with it? We see ourselves as a B2B ingredient. We want to be like that Intel inside the next generation of alternative seafood products. And that would include plant-based seafood. But there's also an opportunity for us to really help cultivated seafood players that are out there blend down the cost without sacrificing nutrition and without sacrificing taste. How are you going to take over the world? How are you going to change everything? By partnering with alternative seafood brands and and cultivated companies, building a global footprint for production of this unique kind of microalgae ingredient, I think we can ultimately what we want to do is become the most consumed seafood ingredient on the planet. So guys, going back to our original question, can we innovate our way out of global hunger? Thoughts? We have to. I think the question is less, can we do it? And more, will we actually do it? Like, I think there are all these interesting innovations that have proved it's possible, but is the world actually going to follow them? Yeah, one of two things is going to happen. The population growth is not going to occur because people can't feed themselves, or we're going to figure out a way to reduce food waste so what we can produce goes further, or we're going to figure out a way to produce more with the land we have. And there will continue to be lots and lots of companies who tackle this problem in all sorts of different ways, and we'll be here to cover those companies. Good first show, guys. See you next week. Off to Dairy Queen.
Full Stack Food is produced by Aditi Roy Media.